My guest this week, Stephen Edgar, is something of a rarity in Australian poetry. If you go into a bookshop today, anywhere in Australia, you go to the poetry section, you could be forgiven picking up pretty much any book for thinking that no Australian poet writes using metre and rhyme. Stephen is one of the few exceptions that I've been able to find. I was introduced to his work through my teacher, Joshua Megan, and I've been fascinated to track Stephen down and talk to him because he really does seem to be doing something very different to what everybody else is doing. Of course, if you went back in time 50 odd years, you would find plenty of people using these tools. And Stephen talks about his relationship to at least one of them. Stephen hasn't always written using meter and rhyme. He made this decision to start writing this way in about the 80s and by my count he's published 12 collections overall. His new and selected, which is called The Strangest Place, won the PM's Literary Award in 2021, which is pretty much the biggest poetry prize that you can land in Australia. I don't know if I've had a PM's Literary Award winner on the show. It is a big prize, it's a it's a very impressive thing, but as you'll hear, to me at least, Stephen just doesn't seem like one of those people who's out there to, to play the game. He is one of those poets who just works and works, chips away quietly at poems just for the sake of the poems. Everything else is kind of a distraction. And I even try at one point to, to draw him in to the the battle between formalist poets and free verse poets, and Stephen's kind of having none of it, which I sort of loved. But look, I don't think you need to care at all about whether a poet is a, a formalist or the tools that they use, um, whether they're a formalist or a free verse poet, to get something out of this conversation. I think Stephen's work and his attitude to poetry go far beyond that distinction. And I was just glad after the many times that Josh mentioned him in class to be able to have this conversation. I really hope you enjoy it. I will be back at the end with some follow-up to last week's episode. Until then, enjoy. Well, this is, this is the culmination of a couple of years of being pointed in your direction by my teacher, Joshua Meekin. <laughs> and I'm really, right. really excited to talk to you. Um, I think I'm going to start with the most annoying question that you can ask a poet, which is to ask them to describe the kind of work that they write. And I've seen you use the word form formalist in reference to your own work. Is that a term that you're totally comfortable with or do you have reservations about it? Well, that is the that is the term that is generally used. Yes, there, there are um, objections to that. Um, as a, another sort of formalist poet friend of mine, Jacob Zagouris, has pointed out, there are various other kinds of writing which use, you know, the constraints of one kind or another that are quite different from rhyme and meter. But, uh, which could be regarded as formalist in their own ways, you know, ulipo and things like that. Um, but nevertheless, formalist is usually used to refer to poets who use, well, mostly um, metri write metrically, but I suppose it can also uh, include uh, writers of syllabic verse or, or any of those other various ways of 
regulating rhythm and line length and what have mm. you. Mm. And I think I read that you started, maybe you started with free verse, moved into syllabics and then moved into rhyme and meter. Is that a fairly? Yes. Well, there's a, there's a kind of a long, <laughs> a longish progress. When I first began writing at uh, you know, high school, like most people who write poetry, I began when I was an adolescent at high school and for you know, six, eight months, I suppose I wrote free verse. I didn't know how to do anything else. But um, before too long, I felt this hankering after some more structured way of writing. Um, why was that the case? I'm not really sure. Maybe just something about my temperament or the kinds of poetry that I'd been drawn to, you know, the romantics or something like that. Um, so then I, I started to try to uh, find a way of writing more formal poetry. Um, and as I've mentioned to various people, um, in our school library, it turns out we had a first edition of Dylan Thomas's first book, 18 Poems, which I read out and was kind of you know, bowled over by. And uh, so I began sort of imitating him. And he, as I read, wrote syllabic verse. So I started writing syllabic verse because that's one way, if you don't know how to use meters, then you can at least count syllables. Um, and just for the benefit of people who don't know what syllabic verse is, it's, it's a verse where you simply count, you regulate the line length simply by the number of syllables, regardless of stresses and things like that. So I began to do that. And by imitating Dylan Thomas, I acquired it sort of the ability to create you know, larger structures, rhyming structures and, you know, stanza forms with, various patterns of line length based on syllables. And uh, from there, I learned how to gradually learned how to write metrical verse, which I did from time to time. Um, uh, but then at, at a certain point, I, I decided that um, syllabic verse wasn't really suitable for me. Um, and I kind of took off at a tangent and began to write a kind of accentual verse where you count major stresses but unstressed syllables can vary from you know almost none to several so it's a bit like sprung rhythm i suppose in a way but not as um, elaborately uh, constructed as hopkins sprung rhythm uh, but ultimately after a few years of that i decided that my own particular talent, if, if you like, or my own bent was towards metrical poetry. So I committed myself to that. Um, that was in, I suppose, the mid-1980s. Mid so since then, I have written metrical poetry um, and usually, usually with rhyme, but not necessarily with rhyme. I have written quite a, few, you know, a lot of unrhymed poems, but they're normally in blank verse or something like mm. that. And you just taught yourself. You didn't have a formal teacher of any kind? No, you just, um, you just do it by, I suppose it's, if, if you have a rhythmical sense, I mean, there are poets who don't have it, <laughs> it has to be said, who don't really have a rhythmical sense uh, and can't hear, even necessarily can't hear meters. But um, if you do have an ear for rhythm and meter, you can teach yourself to simply by imitating, you know, reading, reading poetry, metrical poetry and... Um, you just learn by practice, mm. really. 
my back and forth with Josh was he would say, oh, I don't know about formal verse in Australia. The only poet I know who writes in that way is this person, Stephen Edgar, who I wrote a blurb for. <laughs> and I kept saying to him, oh, that can't be right. There's got to be other people. It can't just be this one person. And in, in preparing for this interview, I've started to sort of realize that like, if you do set aside people who write with constraint, like I'm thinking particularly of a writer like Geordie Alberston, who wrote yeah. with very like yeah. strict and um, elaborate constraints. Um, Indeed, yeah. yeah. There might not be that many others, but do you feel that way? I mean, you're a better place to answer that question than me. At, well, of course, until, you know, the famous generation of 68 revolution, most Australian poets had written of course, formal poetry, yeah. you know, A.D. Hope, Gwen Harwood, mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, but then there came that, that period, that kind of, you know, schism, I suppose. Um, but, but even, but in fact, after, you know, after the, the in, in the 60s on, say, um, whatever poets' allegiances were, they tended to write free verse, um, most of them. Um, and so there aren't so many uh, poets of, say, my generation or younger who write what we are now calling formal formal verse. Um, but there are some, and or and there are some who do it occasionally, but not regularly. Um, I mean, Philip Hodgins, of course, who died so young, what, 20 odd years ago, 25 years ago, uh, he began by mostly writing free verse, but he, he ended up writing quite a lot of formal poetry. Um, and there are other people like Jeff Page, one of our you know, senior poets, he writes formal poetry. It's not like mine particularly, but it, it's metrical often with rhyme. Mm. Mm. Among younger poets, um, that Jacob Zagurus, who I just mentioned, who, who lives in Poland now, he's been living in Poland for some years, he writes highly formal metrical rhyming poetry. He's very good. Um, but there aren't there aren't a lot uh, who come to mind. I have to mm. say. Yeah. I want to quote this passage from Clive James, who was a friend of yours, about he was writing about your very beautiful poem "Man on the Moon" back in two thousand and eight, and I just have to quote this because while I think parts of it might not be correct anymore, I just think it's it's such a funny way to characterize Australian poetry's approach to this. So he says. Australia has a small literary market anyway, and for poetry it is minuscule, so prizes and grants count. Though his position has somewhat improved lately, Edgar has been awarded remarkably few of either, partly because, I fear, the committees are stacked with poets who couldn't write in a set form to save their lives, and with critics and academics who believe that the whole idea of a set form is obsolete. So he's being very cheeky there. Uh, yeah, he was... He was not correct about grants, though, because I was treated um, very generously by the Australia Council, um, you know, for many years. I've got no complaints whatsoever mm. there. It's certainly true that I didn't um, – What? when was that? 2008. Yeah. Um, I hadn't really won any prizes particularly. I had, I had received the um, Philip Hodgins medal by that stage. Um, but I hadn't uh, won any of the Premier's Prizes. And, well, I never, I still haven't. I've never won any of the Premier's Prizes. You've been short, shortlisted um, a couple of times but never won, yeah. 
I've never been shortlisted for the New South Wales Prize or the Victorian one. No, never. I was once shortlisted for the Queensland Prize, but I didn't win it. But I have, um, in the last decade or so, I've been shortlisted for the Prime Minister's Award several times. And finally, I won that a, a year or so ago. But, and yeah, there are a couple of others. Well, in like uh, for, for poems, say, like the what is now called the Peter Porter Prize, the Australian Book Review Poetry Prize. I won that back in 2003 or four, I think, for a, for an individual poem. And so there are a couple of things like that. But uh, but no, back in, in those days, it's true. I hadn't particularly, you know, featured in, in prizes. Yeah. I, I mean, I guess I, I was going to come to this a little bit later, but I just, I ask about all that because I wonder about whether you experience um, like, and any kind of antagonism or a sense that your work is excluded because it is rhyming and metrical and yeah. um, um well while it's it's true that there is i think a kind of prejudice against it i think if you just persist and if you have any talent and you know it should become apparent you know eventually and um so I just persisted. That's the you know, formal poetry is the way that uh, I want to write, and I just persisted in doing it. And you know, in due course, you do break through to a certain extent. But but you know, I like in terms of getting poems published in magazines and things. I you know I had plenty over the years, and I'm I'm not really aware of of a, a prejudice there. But then again, I may have submitted poems to magazines where I thought the editor would be sympathetic and and avoided those where I thought the editor might be hostile so but um so I haven't particularly been aware of a you know a prejudice working against me personally but um there is nevertheless that general feeling that um you sometimes that a lot of people in the poetry world think that you know it's had its day and uh, kind of poetry it has had its day, but, but I don't obviously don't agree with that. And you know, there are lots of, well, particularly in America, you know, there's a very strong formal school of formal poetry, formalist poetry, um, including you know Joshua, Megan there that you mentioned, uh, and 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 others. Um, there are lots of you know there are lots of different schools of and factions in poetry these days, almost. Any kind of poetry is written somewhere by somebody. Yeah, I mean, I might be um, creating an opposition where there isn't one when it comes to Australian poetry because I guess I have been introduced to this world through um, people like Josh and um, mm. and I'm now kind of aware of this strange conflation that seems to exist in the US of um, uh, poetry that uses metre and rhyme and uh, conservatism, <laughs> like political conservatism, well, right. which you know seems like completely right. wild to me. I'm just like, why would you make that connection? But um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, well, funny you should mention that because um, Anthony Hecht, who is you know a famous now, now dead um, American formalist poet, he uh, he mentioned in in an essay or an introduction to a book of essays that some a certain poet he didn't name him. Had said categorically that anyone who writes in rhyme and meter is a fascist. Right, yeah, <laughs> and, which is just like well, it's, it's a ridiculous, 
a totally ridiculous idea. But... And that's not something I feel that we really have to contend with so much here. I mean, I feel as if, yeah. Yes, yes I don't think that opinion has been expressed. <laughs> no, I mean, the only the only example I can think of where poetry overlaps with politics in that particular way would be, say, a journal like Quadrant. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah. Which is sort of yeah. like, well, you know what Quadrant is, so... It's a bit mm. there or not. Like it's kind of like it's that's right. It's all there on the surface. Yeah, but I mean, if, look at Ezra Pound. You know, now he he was a fascist sympathizer, and yet he wrote. You know, the cantos are in very free verse, aren't they? So exactly, exactly. That seems yeah. a, a silly connection to make. Yep. Well, we've summarily dismissed that. That's good. We sorted <laughs> that one out. Um, mm. I wonder if I could ask you to read that poem that I mentioned before. Man on the Moon, just to give people a sense of your work. Okay. Do you want me to say anything about it? I'd love that. Yes, please. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, the first thing um, to say about it is that it's it's part of a, a sequence of a eight or so poems which were written about a you know a love affair that had uh, broken up. Um, so that's the kind of context in which it sits. But all, all the poems in that sequence are self-contained, so you don't need to know the others to know this one. The particular um, point uh, or the, the, su the subject that prompt, prompted this particular poem was uh, an anniversary of the moon landing, which uh, was in July 69, and I wrote this in July 2004. So it was, and I think there were celebrations or there were various mentions of the moon landing. So that is the thematic link between this poem and the sequence in which it occurs. So, uh, Man on the Moon. Hardly a feature in the evening sky as yet. Near the horizon, the cold glow of rose and mauve, which, as you look on high, deepens to Giotto's dream of indigo. Hardly a star as yet, and then that frail sliver of moon like a thin peel of soap gouged by a nail, or the paring of a nail, slender enough repository of hope. There was no lack of hope when, thirty-five full years ago, they sent up the Apollo. Two-thirds of all the years I've been alive. They let us out of school so we could follow the broadcast of that memorable scene crouching in Mr. Langshaw's tiny flat, the whole class huddled round the TV screen. There's not much chance then of forgetting that. And for the first time ever, I think now as though it were a memory that you were in the world then and alive and how down time's long labyrinthine avenue, eventually you'd bring yourself to me with no excessive haste and none too soon as memorable in my history as that small step from man onto the moon. How pitiful and inveterate the way we view the paths by which our lives descended from the far past down to the present day and fancy those contingencies intended. A secret destiny planned in advance where what is done is as it must be done for us alone when really it's all chance and the special one might have been anyone. The paths that I imagine to have come together 
and for good have simply crossed and carried on, and that delirium we found is cold and sober now and lost. And overhead the crescent moon lies back, a radio telescope propped to receive the signals of the circling zodiac. I send my thoughts up, wishing to believe that they might strike the moon and be transferred to where you are and find or join your own. Don't smile. I know the notion is absurd, and everything I think, I think alone. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, I find that poem really moving. I read it the first time and thought of one of the epigraphs out of um, Where the Trees Were. You quote Valerie saying, God made everything out of nothing, but the nothing shows through. Yes, yeah, it's a great quote. It's wonderful, yeah. But I, I actually, the last stanza, I think I misread the first time and I, I thought of it as um, someone talking to God, you know, um, whereas now looking at it again, I sort of realised that maybe it's not, not quite that mystical. <laughs> <It's> actually, <laughs> um, but, yeah, I've been, I guess I've been uh, dipping a little bit into Dunn's um, Holy Sonnet, so maybe my, my mind went there. <laughs> For that reason, yeah. Um, but yeah, it's it's just beautiful. How do you, how do you think about that poem now? Are you still satisfied with it? Uh, yes, uh, yeah, it is one of you know the, my favourites among my own poems. Yeah, I did tweak one line that you know there was a line in it that Clive had um, had criticised Clive James because in in the first version i that that image of the moon like a radio telescope was something i'd used in a previous poem and i kind of alluded to that and he thought that was a bad idea so when i came to include it in my um, new and selected i revised that line so that's that that reference is removed yeah that's the that's the freedom you have when you get to do the new and selected <laughs> that's great um, i have kind of a nerdy craft question for hmm. you and I wondered about how you collect your rhyming words. Well, well, when I back when I was you know imitating Dylan Thomas, I used sort of slant rhymes, half rhymes. Um, I had a kind of practice then. I, if if I happened to write a metrical poem, I'd use full rhymes, and if I was writing a, a syllabic poem, I'd use half rhymes. Um, and then when I eventually you know came to just to be writing metrical poetry, I made the choice to you know I would. I'd go for full rhymes because it's more of a challenge. Um, I do occasionally uh, use half rhymes, uh, very, very occasionally. But very, it seems like it's not—it's not a question though of your um, doing it because you have to. Like it seems a very conscious choice when you do that. Yes, there are sometimes. Uh, I mean, I can think of one poem where I have all—I alternate. Um, to make a pattern, you know, I'll have a full, full rhymes in say eight lines one and three, and then half rhymes in two and four, or something like that, which is a kind of a very conscious patterning. Um, but overwhelmingly, yes, I use full rhymes. I mean, sometimes a rhyme will simply, you know, spring out at you, and other times you do really have to wait for it, as he says, you know, you. You go through, you may puzzle over a particular rhyme, rhyme, uh, and um, 
eventually something will come to you. Of course, if you find you have cornered yourself and you can't find a rhyme, well, you can redraft with a different rhyme, you know, which is something. Yeah, but then you have to give up the original word and then the whole poem falls apart. It's it's maddening. No, no, no. um, You know, you can can just readjust the words and find another rhyme, (laughs) two rhymes that fit, whereas before you had the first and you just couldn't think of the second. Well, you can just shuffle it around a bit. But but, uh, where do I like, you know, I mean, obviously there are a lot of rhymes that are, you know, simple, straightforward rhymes that, you know, have been used again and again. Um, But sometimes, you know, just you have these little serendipitous inspirations where, you know, an interesting, you know, interesting rhyme just occurs to you. And, of course, the very um, need, you know, to find a rhyme can spark your imagination. If you were writing, say, without rhyme, a particular word may have just fallen into place. But... um, the need to, to find a rhyme may spark some very interesting, you know, inspiration in your in your imagination. And you think, oh, yes, now there's a terrific word that just fits this context. Yeah, it's satisfying when it works, mm. but, oh, look, I'm just starting out with this mm. stuff and it is really hard. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. yeah. But you see, resistance itself, you, see, that's another reason why I think a lot of people seem to, a lot of poets seem to have a prejudice against rhyme is because they somehow think it will divert you from what you really want to say to something that fits the rhyme. But of course, you're only finding out what you want to say in the process of writing anyway. It's not as if it pre-exists like a platonic form. Um, The the very form of words that you end up with is something that you discover in the process of writing. So, And as I say, that resistance, the need to fit something to a pattern can spur your imagination rather than former hindrance or a block. Mm, I think that is a that is definitely a prejudice against it. Like, oh, I'll be forced to use a word that I don't want to. And then another thing that I hear sometimes is like, I won't sound like myself anymore because I'll be a slave to the the rhyming metrical pattern and Well, um I suppose it's just something you have to, you know, practice but like anything else, you Practice makes, if not perfect, makes better. And um, mm. as for whether you will sound like yourself, well, in my own case, that I feel that is myself. I mean, that is the voice that um, emerged as what I think is my voice, emerged mm. in the very process of using these structured forms that uh, you know have forced me to, you know, to resist to work against that resistance. That's where my voice has come from. Yeah, I mean, I, I I, don't tend to think that it's true that the voice gets lost. I think it's pretty difficult to lose mm. your voice, actually. Mm. I mm. think it's going to be there mm. come, no matter what you do. Yeah. Um, the other answer to that um, charge, you know, that rhyme forces you to use the wrong, you know, another word instead of the right word, well, you know, free verse can allow you just to use the first word that comes to it that occurs to you. Yeah. Where there is no resistance, whereas if you thought a bit harder, you might find a better word. Yeah. Well, let let me put you on the spot then. And um, you you seem to me like an incredibly humble and and generous person. So I imagine that your answer to this will be um, quite quite temperate. (laughs) But I now, having learned about these tools and learned what they can do, Mm. 
um, I'm starting to find myself thinking things like, every poet should know about this. Every poet should be able to do this or at least have knowledge of it. Um, at least have tried so as to put it away, um, which is a really conservative point of view that I'm not entirely comfortable with. <laughs> Yeah. but what's what are your Well, thoughts on I that? mean, you know, if you, it, it it's part of the history of of poetry, and you would you would hope that anyone who wanted to be a poet would have an interest in you know being familiar with the the forms that poetry has been written in. So um, you would hope that they would at least you know be aware of. of these uh, ways of writing, metrical forms and what have you, even if they don't want to use them themselves. It's a bit like, you know, if you're learning music, you know, you've got to do the scales and everything and study the, you know, Beethoven and Bach, even if you're going to do a, write atonal music, you still know the, the his, history and the, the forms that have been used in the past. So, um, but yes, it, it is surprising. I mean, I don't know how widespread that is that people... don't want to learn about it. I mean, I know there are, I mean, like even say, you know, poets like um, Martin Johnston and uh, John Tranter could write, can write, could write formal poetry if they wanted to, you know, they were certainly able to do that, even though they may not generally have done so. Um, but certainly I have come across uh, people who, who have that view that they just don't want to know about it at all. They think it's irrelevant and they just want to write. you know, free verse. Again, yeah, again, it's this, this sort of feeling that like I'll be forced down a, a road I don't want to go down. I'll have to, um, I'll have to use, I'll have to follow rules that I had no interest in in the first place. Um, I'm not really sure though. Like maybe I'm making this person up. Maybe they don't exist. I'm not sure. <laughs> Yes, but yes, yeah. I don't know. I mean, um, I haven't. It's a long time since I've had that conversation with anyone, and they were very young. They were very young people. So whether, you know, mat more mature <laughs> poets have that prejudice, I don't know. I'll go off in a slightly different direction now. Um, there, you sent me a, a really wonderful interview that AM just did with you in Plough. And in that, you talked a little bit about your friendships with other poets. And one of the people that you mentioned was Gwen Harwood. Yes. You mentioned her earlier as well. Um, you have a poem in Lost in the Foreground about her that has the lines, none more than you knew where the shadows are. Uh, I've only just started to come to Gwen's work Yeah. Mm. and I find it, um, I like it, re it resists a little bit, um, but not always. Um, but yeah, the fact that you knew her and because you lived in Hobart, um, It to me feels a bit like you lived next door to Emily Dickinson, and so I just sort of have I have to ask like. Well, yes, I mean, it 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 is it was you know quite uh, you know astounding in a way to think that I, I knew somebody as eminent as that. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. What what was she like? I I would just love to hear any any detail you'd be willing to share. well, well, she was very witty. She had a wicked wit, as you may know, with the verbal you know hoaxes that she that she played and the various pseudonyms that she used. So she she was highly. obviously highly intelligent, highly erudite, uh, and she could be very funny. 
she can be sharp too. Um, she, she didn't suffer fools gladly, but um, but no, she was you know very very good company, great company. She's a, a wonderful cook, very you know generous hostess. She would uh, cook uh, wonderful meals. Um, so yes, she was a she was a good friend. Yes. Well, I wouldn't want to overstate the closest of, you know, we were friends. I wouldn't say I was one of her closest friends or anything, but we were friends for from when I arrived in Hobart, which was late 74 until her death in 95. We were, I, my first partner, Anne Jennings, was a friend of hers, and that's right, how I got right. to know her. Did you ever yeah. get a sense of whether she reconciled herself to living in Hobart as opposed to... I know that she kind of, from what what I've been able to piece together, she didn't. She felt a bit in exile. Yes. Well, to be honest, I I don't know that. You know, perhaps I wasn't paying attention, uh, but I I don't remember her making those sorts of disparaging remarks about Tasmania when I knew her. And but it's clear that she, you know she never liked living there. She claims to, to have hated the place and. Um, so I don't think she ever did. I mean, and certainly she looked back on her childhood in Brisbane as a kind of earthly paradise. And she she is one was one of those people who have this view of childhood as, you know, this wonderful time, this paradisal sort of time. There are certain people like that. Dylan Thomas was another one like that. But um, so, yes, she obviously missed the heat uh, of, you know, Queensland of Brisbane to that kind of subtropical luxuriousness um so yes she she obviously I, yes it's, i think it's true she never really did come to terms with tasmania maybe but i you know i wouldn't want to speak for her on, on that but um, it wasn't something i was aware of when i knew her well it's i guess it's something that um as a community of poets in australia uh it's a lot less of a theme now but i feel like even 15 years ago that whole thing of like the poetry of place like we were quite mm. obsessed with like where we were mm. uh in the country and still you know there's very much like a um a sense of like are you a melbourne poet are you a sydney poet like um yeah yeah and that sort of brings me to something else I wanted to ask you about, which was working as editor of Ireland, which you did. I think I have eighty I have eighty nine to ninety four down as your as the poetry editor, yeah. Yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. that's right. Um and that would have been while you were living down there in Yes, Hobart. that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That was yeah, so the um the founding editors of Ireland, uh, Andrew Sant and Michael Denham, they worked in that position for a decade, and they decided they had enough and wanted to move on. So um, they uh, chose um, or asked Cassandra Pybus if she would like to take over the editing, which she did, but they wanted a separate poetry editor. And Andrew, you know, I was friends with, and still am, uh, asked me if I would take on the poetry editorship. And I have to say that I was reluctant to do so because it's not something that I you know, had any hankering to do. But anyway, I did it. Um, so I, you know, I hope I, I did it reasonably well. But um, in it was in 1994 when there was a 
a big uh, sort of dispute within the management committee of Ireland and Cassandra Pybus resigned and I took the opportunity then of bowing out myself up that. <laughs> Uh, when I interviewed, so I interviewed Sarah Holland Bad and also Kate Middleton, both of whom have served in that role. Mm. And I think, I can't remember if I asked Sarah about this, but Kate said that she got somewhere in the order of a thousand poems per issue. Do you remember how many poems you used to get? Not nearly that much. Um, it did increase over time. Um, well, it certainly would have been two or three hundred probably, but, um. Yeah, it was a, quite. A, it was a lot, you know. It was a lot. It's enough. Like two or three hundred is plenty. <laughs> yeah. Well. Well. Yes. And uh, I heard uh, your interview with Sarah Holland Bat, and uh, I was staggered at the amount of re reading she did for those anthologies that she. Edited. Oh, me I too. I couldn't believe that. I mean, I couldn't believe it, except of what I know of Sarah is that mm. she's such a powerhouse. It's mm. like, okay, if somebody was going to do that, you were going to be the person but yeah it's um yeah I don't know if it's a function of population or if it is this thing of like Australian poetry having a bit of a um I've heard it described as as a bit of a renaissance um but yeah Island is a journal that I don't think I will ever be able to get into in my lifetime <laughs> <laughs> I've tried a few times but yeah I'm just like I think it's beyond me oh well you just you know and it's, it is tough when you're starting out trying to get published. Uh, you know, the rejections pile up. And when you get. Yeah, or in my case, they don't because I don't send anything oh, out anymore. <laughs> you have to do that. Uh, you have to do that bit. Yeah. You have to. I mean, I wasn't as assiduous as, as many poets. You really have to have a hard hearted at attitude to it. And, you know, as soon as something comes back rejected, you send it out to the next one on the list, you know. But uh, yeah, you do have yeah. to just plug away at it mm. just plugging away i wonder if i could ask you to read one of the poems from plow um i thought mind out of matter might be a good one to go with and i wondered if you might be able to set this up a little bit for us yes well curiously enough in poems come from all sorts of different places in my own case i think you know poems generally come from a an image of some kind. It's a, something that I've either seen in the real world or seen on television or on a film or something, or some something I've read that contains a, a strong visual image which sets off some kind of shiver or tremor in my imagination. Now, in the case of this, it was an episode of Gardening Australia, strangely enough. Really? <laughs> and there's a, I love that. a hospital in, uh, I think it's in Paddington or somewhere. I just forget which one it is. And they were building a roof garden on it. And uh, it was something in what I, I saw there on that episode that um, sparked this poem. Uh, I can't remember how. It's, it's a poem about consciousness as well. I'm not quite sure where that came in, but anyway, that was, that was the origin of it, watching Gardening Australia. <laughs> mm -hmm. It's called Mind Out of Matter. A rooftop garden, of all things you would not expect to find Above these sunless wards, the failings of the body and the mind. Offering its unconditional pardon, water records itself and light in rippling interwoven patterns fed from some recurrent source and runs a copy off on the channel bed. 
which birch leaves and their shadows in a slight cross breeze endorse. Reflections teem over the whiffled surface through a pond and bend and almost shatter. Some nodding blooms, clouds wandering beyond the edge and trailing foliage, a stream of unfolding matter. And figures, too, of those from lower stories who must feel sunstruck astonishment to be up here, unwalled again and real. Can these bones live? What ravelling process grew this accident of tissue in the skull with which they know themselves today? Must matter simply fit together, maybe, in a certain way, and mind emerges? There is the origin and end of it. What do they care? Watching the puzzle of the native grasses broadcast to the sky where not much happens and what does soon passes. Sitting their rationed hour, breathing the air they are freshened by, while all of this unfolds behind their eyes, emergent from these rooftop elements, light, shadow, leaf, the fluent idiom of water and their metamorphosis alive to sense. Thank you. Um, at the hospital where I work, there is a rooftop garden there as well. And so I read that and immediately kind of understood where you were talking about and it really spoke mm. to me. Mm. Um, I feel I didn't ask you properly about winning the PM's Literary Award because obviously this is not a small thing. Like This is pretty major. It is, yeah. Um, did you did you feel like that was because you know at the start I was kind of quoting Clive James saying Australian poetry doesn't know what to do with formal verse people don't understand it um, did that win um, for um, in in twenty twenty one did that feel like a vindication uh, yes and well I don't know whether vindication is the the word I would use but I was I mean obviously I was thrilled. And it was a kind of relief because, you know, I, I had been, my previous, you know, three or three books, I think, had all been shortlisted and and none of them had won. <laughs> and I was thinking, oh, God, you know, it'll probably happen again. And, mm. um, because you don't know, you you don't know whether you're going to win, they don't tell you. Um, so, you know, I was sort of holding my breath and uh, it was a great relief as well as a thrill to hear my name read out. Oh, wonderful. Thank heavens for that. <laughs> it's a bit like the Oscars then. You have to go not knowing. Yes. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I'm not sure whether that's, that's true of all. I think it, it's meant to be true of, of most of the prizes that they don't tell you. I mean, it may be that some people do know, but certainly I didn't know. Mm. Well, I've heard people say if they're shortlisted, sometimes they'll get a call that's like, we really do want you to be there. <laughs> yeah, no, well, I didn't, I didn't get one. Um, but as it happens, funnily enough, I was the, I mean, I was the only shortlisted poet who actually turned up because uh, one of them, Jaya Savage, lives in London. This is COVID was still going. Yes, of course. Yeah. He was in London. He couldn't come. There was a, a, a West Australian poet and um, she couldn't come because you know if she or she could have come but she wouldn't have been allowed back into western australia uh and um john scott who lives in victoria i think he was ill and and laurie duggan there was something 
I think he might have been ill as well. It was bizarre. So, I mean, they, some of them would have come. I'm sure they all would have come if they could. But for some reason, I was the only one there. So just as well <laughs> that I did. <laughs> but otherwise, there would have been no one to collect the prize. Mm. Yeah, right. Mm. Well, I yeah, I did send that to Josh as kind of like, see, we do care about formal birds. <laughs> <laughs> considered calling the episode or putting in the description um, an interview with Australia's only formalist poet but it's just not true <laughs> there are there are others there are others but look um, having read Stephen's work to prepare to interview him uh, I, I can say that he's by far the best I've ever read so take that for for what you will. Um, this follow-up is a bit of a U-turn after such a gentle interview. Stephen, if you're still listening, I apologize in advance <laughs> because I have a bit of follow-up from my previous episode, which was called Hot and Bothered. It was about sex in poetry, the erotic in poetry. And I just want to thank you all. Thank you, everyone, for not only... Um, saying that I wasn't crazy for putting it out but just for your responses like I've never had so many poems sent to me and just before I go any further everybody unclench the people whose poems I'm going to talk about already know about it okay so I'm not going to just like randomly read out your poem that goes for any time that you write to me by the way like if you're holding off on writing to me um, because you're afraid that I'm going to quote you and the whole internet will hear what you have to say. I tend to err very much on the side of caution with that, and I tend to check with people even when I feel like they're probably going to be fine with it. I will tend to check. So, yeah, don't worry. I'm not going to put anybody on the hook who doesn't already know that they are on the hook. But I did get so many so many poems sent to me. A couple of people did say that they really enjoyed the David Brooks poem, which meant so much to me because it really is one of my favorites. I want to read this poem by friend of the show, Liam Fernie. So this is from Liam's first book called Popular Mechanics. He told me that he wrote this in about 2000, which I think Liam means, I mean, you were definitely in your early 20s. So this is called A Heartfelt Glove. A heartfelt glove. After the rain, my shoes dry and crack. 1.49am. Coro is set up like a defensive driving course. You know you're really fucking when you have to stop for water. The weather is nothing. It is the vignettes that are lurid and frightening. Yes, dear. I'm having a memorable trip. We'll write again soon. Like, how did you do that when you were that young like I kind of hate you Liam <laughs> I don't understand I probably classify that less as an erotic poem for me and more as a it's just very very funny Coro is set up like a defensive driving course but look of the contributions I got the very best one that I was just so happy to get was from my listener, Leela, who wrote to me from Adelaide. Leela works in a bookshop. 
and oh my goodness what a gift I have here so the singer Cody Simpson uh, when you google Cody Simpson the first thing that comes up is Cody Simpson girlfriend then Cody Simpson Instagram Cody Simpson swimming no I need Cody Simpson singer wait he's a swimmer and an actor and a singer songwriter oh my god and he has a book of poetry he's a renaissance man okay so Leela sent me some photos from this book and oh my god just such a gift okay there's, oh, there's so many good ones to choose from okay I don't think any of them have titles which absolutely Cody like why would you fuck with titles like no just get straight into it here we go let me tell you about freedom it cowers and shivers as young women dance in dark corners to provoke your belt. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I've now officially embarrassed myself. <laughs> oh, that's very special. And then he's got, um, what are they called, mono, mono stitches? Just like one line on a whole page? Because of course, like you're writing a poetry book and why, why would you use the whole page when you could just use one one tiny part of the page a thought is a ripple on the vast ocean of consciousness mm-hmm this is the best one don't fall for her flowers but for her roots ah <laughs> oh, Leela you're the best you're the absolute best thank you so much okay I have more to get to and I'm going to I don't want to ramble on forever like I did last time. The other week, I had a chat with none other than Matt Wall, Los Angeles-based poet, um, something of a renaissance man himself. Matt would be the first to admit that he is not everyone's cup of tea. But the other day, we had a chat and he interviewed me for his show, the I Hate Matt Wall Poetry Podcast. Matt, every time I think about that, I just kind of want to say, like, why does it have to be I hate Matt Wall? Like, it's so harsh. I don't know. I worry too much. Um, yeah, Matt interviewed me. I was having a pretty terrible day. I told him it was a 6 out of 10 day. I was probably exaggerating. But it was a really delightful conversation. Matt's a really good interviewer. And, um, yeah, here's a little taste of that. When I said earlier that I think you are the most famous poet in Australia and you started <laughs> laughing like you are right now. <laughs> Why is that funny to you? Oh, because I'm so not. I mean, I'm so not. I just am so not. There's like really fucking famous people with huge awards and like, I mean, I don't know. I'm just not that famous. <laughs> I'm well, not famous I'm at all. See, I was just going to say, I'm glad you said not that. And then you're like, no, not at all. Not at all. Okay, no, no, I, I want to remind you something. Not. You sent me a poem a while ago. Okay. Do you remember this? Oh, yes. Oh, you're going to John Berryman me. <laughs> I'm going to John Berryman you. Oh, God. I walked into that. <laughs> it's mostly an hour of me laughing, which is really nice to hear because, as I say, the day didn't really start out that way. But, yeah, if you need more Alice Allen in your life. Head over there, listen to Matt um, tell me how apparently great I am for, for an hour. Uh, Matt is also crowdfunding for his latest book, 
Hope you enjoy that conversation if you decide to go over and listen. And Matt, if you are listening on Monday, happy birthday. I hope the day was exactly what you wanted it to be. Just one last little thing before I go. My schedule might be a little bit messed up next week. I'm just not really sure how long what I'm working on for next Tuesday is going to take me. But if I haven't got it out on time, just wait longer. Because of that, I thought I would take the opportunity now. It's a little bit early, but I do just need to say something to my most hated sworn enemy, Matthew Buckley-Smith of Slee Ricketts. With any luck, his show is going to hit 100 episodes this week. And you know, I'm not going to bust a gut over it. Like, no big deal. It's just that, you know, I, I did start listening to that show at the end of 2021 when the whole city was kind of losing its mind and it, it sort of sustained me through that whole horrible, horrible period. And I, I sort of hang out for it every week and I do listen to it as soon as it comes out and it's got me reading more than I ever have and thinking about things that I never really considered and understanding more about poetry than I have before which is kind of the thing I care most about in my life and you know I've met people through it uh, who are now considered friends but you know it's not a big deal it's really it's totally whatever like it sort of doesn't really mean anything I mean imagine if I made a huge deal about that like imagine that would be so ridiculous like what an over-the-top thing to do Anyway, uh, happy 99 episodes, I guess.